two of the Urban Renewal series was originally scheduled to be released today, August 13th. However, due to the mass shootings in Gilroy, California, El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio, I felt it was important to discuss these events. The Urban Renewal series conclusion is being rescheduled for two weeks from today. My apologies for any inconvenience. Content warning. This episode includes discussion of sexual violence, gun violence, suicide, and murder, including mass murder. Listener discretion is advised. In October of 2008, I attended a rally for then-Senator Barack Obama during his first presidential campaign. He came to the University of Cincinnati campus in Cincinnati, Ohio, and spoke at Nippert Stadium days before the election. This was the perfect time to see him, as I was attending UC at the time and lived just blocks from campus. After making it through security, I stood for hours on the field with thousands of other people just yards from the future president. The stadium was packed. It was bursting with people. There were children and older people as well as young adults and the middle-aged. There were people of different races and ethnicities, different belief systems. It was America. And we watched as Obama, in a moment of humanity with emotion, shared the news of his grandmother who helped raise him passing away earlier the same day. He also discussed the hope and change that his candidacy represented. It was a positive atmosphere. It was a wonderful vibe. And from what I can remember, there weren't any fights. There wasn't any violence. I wasn't afraid. I wasn't scared at any point of being caught up in some kind of altercation or skirmish. But there was another rally here in Cincinnati recently that took on a completely different tone. On Thursday, August 1st of this year, Donald Trump, the current occupier of the executive office, held a rally in downtown Cincinnati at U.S. Bank Arena. Trump supporters from all over the tri-state, including supporters in southwest Ohio, northern Kentucky, and southeast Indiana, descended on the venue, which sits on the banks of the Ohio River, to support Dear Leader, who has been in office for over two years but has not stopped running for president. Inside the arena, conflict arose as a few protesters were able to make their way into the Trump rally, where they were then attacked by Trump supporters, which is par for the course at his rallies. Outside, where a protest had formed, there was also unrest. Most notably, a Trump supporter riding up on the protest in a red pickup jumped out, squared up, and punched a protester who was probably twice his age before quickly being cuffed by police, all caught on camera. Many Trump supporters argue that the difference in tone proves that they were respectful of Obama, but Trump's opponents, who they characterize as the left, don't respect Trump. But considering the racist themes that made it into right-wing memes of President Obama and his family, his being burned and lynched in effigy, and the inexplicable belief of many Trump supporters that racism 
wasn't an issue until a black man became president. Imagine that. This take is revisionist history. The fact of the matter is, beyond the fact that the United States itself was built on racism and white supremacy, Donald Trump's rhetoric has given comfort and fuel to the violent, deadly, homegrown threat from within. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. episode, I will discuss the recent mass shootings that occurred a couple weeks ago, as of the time this episode is being released. There is a strain of thought I've been hearing a lot where people don't want to name the shooters in these mass shootings, argument being that many mass shooters enjoy the notoriety of killing a lot of people, and we don't want to give them that satisfaction. I understand that sentiment, and I get it. But after a lot of consideration, I have decided that in this episode, I will name them. And in a few minutes, I will explain why. But first, let's discuss a few incidents. On Sunday, July 28th, the annual garlic festival in Gilroy, a small city in Northern California, is in its final day. During the festival, Santino William Legan, a 19-year-old young man interested in disparate, violent ideologies such as white supremacy and Islamic extremism, hops the fence to enter the festival. Once on the grounds of the festival, he takes a Wasser 10 rifle, which is a Romanian-branded AK-47, and opens fire, killing three people, including two children, and wounding 13 others. After getting into a confrontation with police, with the police shooting him several times, he then turns the gun on himself, shooting himself dead. Cops find in Legan's social media a target list, suggesting that he was also planning on attacking other targets, such as religious groups, both major political parties, and government locations. Later that same week, Two days after Donald Trump's Cincinnati rally, on Saturday, August 3rd, in El Paso, Texas, 21-year-old Patrick Crucius, a radicalized white supremacist, arms up and drives from his home in suburban Dallas to El Paso, 10 hours away, closer to the U.S. border with Mexico. He expressly chooses this target because he wants to kill Mexicans. He picks out a Walmart inside of Cielo Vista Mall, where men, women, and children are going about their day, unaware of what is about to befall them. Crucius gets out of his car, walks inside the store, and, using his AK-47 rifle, kills 22 innocent people and wounds dozens more. He drives off and is later spotted by police after getting lost in a local neighborhood gets out of his car, and is arrested without incident. Late that same night, into the next morning, in Dayton, Ohio, 1,600 miles away from El Paso, and only 45 minutes north of Cincinnati, 
where Trump held his rally a couple nights earlier, 24-year-old Connor Betts hangs out with his sister and a friend in the city's Oregon Historic District. He splits from them sometime later. Less than an hour after that, Betts comes back to the area, walks in front of a bar, and shoots into the crowd that is hanging out in front of the bar. He kills nine people in 32 seconds with a modified AM-15 pistol that looks similar to an AR-15. Dozens more were injured. Of the nine people killed, five are men and four are women, six are black and three are white. Connor Betts is a white male. Betts' own younger sister is among the dead. Police, who were already present, confront Betts and kill him while he's still shooting. The only reason the shooting lasts 32 seconds is because the police end his life. So I've discussed these incidents and named these killers. And this is why I think it is important to name them. First of all, when other incidents take place, such as mass murder committed by young extremist Muslims inspired by Islamic terror, shootings in poor communities of color, or crimes committed by undocumented immigrants, we simply don't have this debate. If the police or the FBI or CIA name them, there's generally no internal struggle, no reservations about naming them, no worries about inspiring copycats. If we're going to name these people who are taking human life, we should name mass shooters who are homegrown American white men. Just like there are a number of reasons why, say, a black person or a Muslim or a Latino immigrant might turn to violence. This is the same for white people, including white men. We need to be careful about the assumption that white people will be law-abiding citizens and won't turn to violence unless they see the notoriety another white person gets for committing a heinous crime. There are motivations for people to commit crimes that don't necessarily have anything to do with notoriety or fame, and for those of any race, nationality, or religion that are susceptible to that type of thinking, we need to look deeper into why being remembered for something horrible is more desirable than the alternative. Secondly, not naming them makes it easier to ignore who they are, and by extension, how they may have gotten to this point. When we name perpetrators and accuse perpetrators who are seen as other, such as Muslims, Black Americans, Latino Americans, it is easy for the majority to reinforce this idea that the other is dangerous. Some guy named Muhammad or Demetrius or Jose. But not providing a name to a domestic terrorist, particularly a white domestic terrorist, paradoxically provides some of that same separation. Let me explain. In our minds, there's a difference between hey, some crazy guy shot up a mall and this guy named Brad shot up a mall. Brad might look like someone you know. A brother, a son, a cousin, a friend. Might be the same age as you or others you care about. You might have friends named Brad. That's disconcerting. Brad's last name might be the same as someone else you know. Huh, I wonder if they're related. Brad has a backstory. He may have lived a life a lot like you and yours up until that point. He may have grown up in a similar neighborhood 
went to similar schools, had similar interests. He might listen to some of the same bands or watch the same TV shows. He might be struggling with things that he should talk to a professional about, which happens to a lot of us. He might go to the same denomination of church you or your parents go to. He might feel the same way as you about health care or the wall. He might be supporting the same candidate in the next presidential election. A crazy shooter is easy to separate ourselves from in our mind's eye. But Brad, Brad hits too close to home. When we erase these shooters' identities, we erase who they are and how they turn to violence and how their ideologies may not necessarily be so isolated. They may be widely embraced by our society. All of these shootings and the uptick in mass shootings in recent years has led to a national discussion on how to address these mass shootings. Of course, when shootings like this occur, many people see it as an opportunity to discuss gun control. While gun rights is one of those issues, probably the only issue, where I lean more right of center, I think it's fair to place all potential solutions on the table and consider them. The argument I've seen from pro-Second Amendment advocates that discussion of gun control in the wake of these mass shootings is too soon is disingenuous. No, every time these shootings occur, it's not too soon, it's too late. I can understand why so many Americans would focus on gun control, particularly the banning of assault weapons. The term assault weapon is a bit of a misnomer. A lot of times, people think of high-magazine rifles that loosely resemble military-grade weapons, which are assault rifles, even though the civilian weapons, such as the AR-15, are not military-grade weapons or assault rifles. These large-magazine semi-automatic rifles tend to be the targets of actions against assault weapons, likely because of the fact that these types of rifles tend to be highlighted in mass shootings, although not all mass shootings involve these style of weapons. I get the idea of gun control. The U.S. has an insane amount of gun violence, especially for a post-industrialized country, and a major difference between the U.S. and other post-industrialized countries is our prolific gun culture. But simply pointing out the differences in our gun policy doesn't tell the whole story. Differences between the U.S. and other post-industrialized countries also include our over-reliance on laissez-faire capitalism, our penchant for hyper-individualism, and outsized influence of religion. And the case can be made that all of these issues also contribute in some way to the high rates of gun deaths. Believe it or not, I don't reject all gun control measures. I do support comprehensive background checks and making sure that some crimes, such as domestic violence-related crimes, are included in these checks. Empirical evidence exists that background checks, as well as permit requirements, are related to a decrease in firearm homicide rates. Red flag laws, which allow police and family members to petition a court for a temporary gun confiscation order if a gun owner shows they're a danger to themselves or others. These laws, which are on the books in 17 states plus Washington, D.C., are another approach that is being discussed on a larger scale. To be honest, I have mixed feelings about this. 
I'm okay with having something in place, like a red flag law up to a point, as a number of these shootings involve perpetrators with no prior criminal record, but have exhibited warning signs. So these laws are designed to help close that gap. But the lack of due process involved in many of these laws makes them open to potential abuse. That said, while gun control seems like a great way to solve the epidemic of mass shootings and gun deaths, I don't think that gun control alone will fix the problem. There are a number of politicians that are talking about bringing back the assault weapons ban, which was in place from 1994 until 2004. Statistically, the effects of the assault weapons ban were mixed at best. Gun deaths plateaued during the period and didn't continue to increase, but they didn't decrease either. When the ban was lifted, gun deaths did spike sharply. But even during the ban, it didn't stop the body count. In April of 1995, right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh set up a makeshift fertilizer bomb inside a rented moving truck with the help of fellow right-wing extremist Terry Nichols and blew up the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City killing 168 people, including several children. Four years later, in April of 1999, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, students at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado, took several guns and shot up their school, killing 13 people and wounding 21, before turning the guns on themselves. Columbine was intended to be a bombing, as IEDs were planted in the school's cafeteria, and underneath their cars outside, intended to kill as many students, teachers, and police as possible. The guns were intended to be used to kill survivors as they tried to escape from the bomb blasts. But unlike McVeigh and Nichols, Harris and Klebold sucked at building bombs, so none went off. The danger in simply banning guns as the solution is that the violence is likely to continue, but with different implements of extreme violence. Of course, knives and bats will still be available, and it's harder to kill a lot of people, like killing nine people and wounding two dozen others in 32 seconds. But recently in California, a man went on a spree that killed four people and injured two others, and his weapon of choice was a knife. So you can do some damage with more close-range weapons. The other thing is, is that as what occurred in Oklahoma City and what was attempted in Columbine, there are also more deadly ways of killing a lot of people in a short period of time besides guns. And the efforts of those who want to enact terror and mass suffering on a large scale may only escalate in terms of what they try. Where there's a will, there's a way. We need to focus on the root issues leading to so much gun violence in the United States. If we don't focus on the core ills in our society leading to such a strong culture of gun violence, we're only putting a band-aid on a gaping wound. Sometimes we just need a nice palate cleanser. Because when we read and hear about what's going on in our world, let's face it, it's a lot. If you're looking for that palate cleanser, check out Divisive Issues which is an awesome comics podcast from Flying Machine. In the latest episode, 
Ryan, Phil, Daryl, and Sly wrap up their four-parter on DC's year-long weekly series, 52. Ryan and Sly say 52 is the greatest comic story ever written. Does it live up to the hype? Listen to the latest in Divisive Issues to find out. Well, not just the latest episode, but all four episodes of the series. Listen to Divisive Issues on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Or check out their website at franzradio.com slash divisive issues. And for all the awesome, really cool podcasts from Flying Machine, go to flymachine.network slash shows. But Jay, all these mass shootings are terrible. But what about Chicago, Baltimore, Detroit? Okay, let's talk about these places. First of all, let's be for real. The subtext of these questions tends to be black-on-black murders, which has been a phrase used by some within urban communities of color to draw attention to urban violence, and by others, generally those outside these communities, to dismiss concerns about police brutality brought up by black Americans. For those who use black-on-black gun violence as a political deflection, most violent crime, including murder, is intraracial. Just like most black murder victims are killed by other black people, most white murder victims are killed by other white people, and so on. And the reason is simply proximity. You're more likely to be killed by someone you know than to be killed at random. And in general, most Americans still live with and near people who are of the same race as themselves. Now, setting aside the dog whistle aspects of questions like this, The urban poor areas of these cities, as well as a number of other major cities in the U.S., do suffer from a great deal of gun violence. And while mass shootings, particularly terror attacks like those in El Paso, make the news, gun violence occurs daily in a number of America's cities. And interestingly enough, when gun control measures are enacted, they tend to be enacted most stringently in cities especially cities with large populations of people of color. Yet the core issues that lead to inner-city gun violence are rarely addressed in an effective way. Poverty, in general, tends to be correlated with race, and poverty is also correlated with crime, including gun-related crimes. Now, being poor doesn't mean you're destined to live a life of crime. People who are poor are not intrinsically different or inferior to other classes of people. First of all, being poor, not just broke, not just going through a rough patch, but being poor is often tied to lack of opportunity and resources. So while we talk about lifting ourselves up by our own bootstraps, and of course we can point to examples of individuals who have come out of poverty to become well off, in general, it is extremely difficult to change your socioeconomic status in the United States. Class status isn't just about money. It's about opportunities and resources that afford you certain jobs and careers and access to upward mobility. Even choices on what to buy and how to manage money, those are often governed by our socioeconomic status to where it literally costs more to be poor. And when people are perpetually poor, struggling with their basic needs and don't see a way out, they may resort to desperate measures that may not necessarily be legal. 
or they may fall into crowds that are involved in criminal activity, such as street gangs. Poverty tends to be a driver of broken relationships and marriages, and families with a missing parent due to the stresses of crushing poverty, or parents who aren't around for their kids because they may have to work several jobs to make rent and keep the family fed. So young people in these situations may turn to street gangs for a surrogate family and for protection. A lot of the gun violence is related to gang violence, including turf wars, which are sometimes related to illicit activity, like drug trafficking, which I'll get into in a second. It also doesn't help that we often criminalize being poor, such as loitering laws targeting the homeless or targeting people for arrest for petty crimes, not to mention the criminal justice system where race and class are major predictors of outcomes. The police brutality incident where the NYPD killed Eric Garner was initiated when the police approached him for selling loose cigarettes on the street, which was illegal. Selling cigarettes? How many times do people commit crimes like speeding or making tub wine or selling pastries without a business license that don't lead to being accosted by police? People go to jail for years for stealing candy bars while others steal billions of dollars and get golden parachutes. The difference is that the poor, especially poor people of color, are more often targeted by police. You find what you're looking for. And a generation of poor people with criminal records for being poor isn't conducive to changing one's life. How easy is it to find a job with a criminal record? Having a record with increased barriers to upward mobility often leads to more crime, including escalation of crimes, including crimes that involve guns, like robbery and assault, and even murder. Another issue that disproportionately affects poor urban neighborhoods and is tied into gun violence is the drug war. The drug war deserves its own episode, and that may be coming in the near future. But in a nutshell, the drug war, which has been waged by the federal government for several decades, has been aimed primarily at poor urban neighborhoods and people of color, not as victims who need help, but as perpetrators. Part of the issue is that drugs have been a way for people in urban ghettos who are very talented, but don't see a lot of opportunity for using their talents for legal, gainful employment to make a lot of money. Drugs have been a vice historically confined to urban neighborhoods, not in terms of drug use, since there is no significant difference between blacks and whites in terms of illicit drug use, but in terms of the drug trait, meaning that drug users of different races, including white Americans, will often visit black or Latino neighborhoods in order to obtain drugs. I talked a little bit about the history of that in the last episode, so if you haven't listened to that one already, feel free to check that out. And while there are independent drug dealers, many drug dealers in urban ghettos are involved in gangs. The turf wars are often not simply because some kids want to say they own a street. Turf wars are typically related to the drug trade, and those turf wars involve gun violence. If we can address racial inequalities, and poverty in a comprehensive way and end the drug war, we can take care of a great deal of urban gun violence in cities like Chicago, Baltimore, and Detroit. Now, the majority of gun violence in the United States comes not from mass shootings or from urban violence, but from suicides. 
two-thirds of gun deaths are from suicides, while a third are from homicides. Within those percentages are accidents, but accidents are not consistently recorded on death certificates, so they're difficult to determine from the statistics. Of the two-thirds of gun deaths by suicide, 85% are committed by males. Now, part of that may be that there are typically differences between genders when it comes to the manner of suicide. Women are more likely to attempt suicide and use less immediate means, such as overdosing on pills, while men are more likely to use more immediate means, such as guns or hanging. Women are more likely to attempt suicide, but men are more likely to go through with it successfully, for lack of a better term. In girls, this is changing, and an increasing percentage of them are using more violent methods. But overall, men and boys are more likely to use methods that have a higher success rate, such as guns. The suicide rate, as well as accidents, are disconcerting, and is something we need to address. When it comes to accidents, we need to make sure that we're taking gun safety seriously. If you're going to own a gun, you should learn how to use it and how to store it. And when it comes to suicide, I think the way we can address this type of gun violence ties into some of the mass murders we've been seeing as well. We need to take mental health seriously. And I'm sure that some of you are thinking that a lot of gun rights advocates and Republican politicians tend to blame mental health for mass shootings instead of dealing with the real issues. And you're right. But not because mental health isn't an issue at all. Is because conservative politicians have been defunding mental health care on a federal level since the 1980s. Mental health care is just as important as physical health care. Of course, mental illness doesn't make someone more likely to kill. But if someone is having suicidal or homicidal ideations, we need to make the resources available for people, regardless of their ability to pay so that it can be addressed and consistently treated. It's a public health and public safety issue. We also need to continue working on lifting the stigma surrounding mental illness and seeking treatment for mental disorders. It's better than it once was, but we need to do even better. It's okay to need and seek help. Speaking of that, since I have spent a good deal of time discussing suicide, if you are in any way considering or contemplating suicide, please call your country's suicide hotline right away. In the United States, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Circling back to what led me to make this episode, mass shootings. While there are some shootings that can be attributed to mental illness, much of what we're seeing is not that. A lot of what we're seeing right now is being motivated by extremist right-wing ideologies. In researching this, there was an excerpt from an article in Politico written by Adrian Carasquillo that illustrates this very well. Quote, All day on Sunday, the day after the shooting in El Paso, hardened advocates became emotional while explaining what it's like to live in the United States after a killer drove 10 hours to kill Mexicans, Latinos, 
and immigrants. The next day, I still felt restless after a conversation with a friend. She had been crying because her husband overheard white men at the community pool remarking that while they didn't agree with the killings, how magnanimous. They too didn't want white people to be wiped out and for Hispanics to take over. Where was this said? The deeply Republican city of Los Angeles, of course. He openly was discussing this like it was sports talk, she told me, furious. After 20 people are dead. End quote. It's easy for Americans to see the connection between extremely conservative forms of Islam, such as Wahhabism, and the Islamic terror that has come from groups such as ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Of course, as it is in all things, the connections are more complex than that. There's a lot of history and a lot of different ideological things that go along with that. Yet we often think of young men and women around the world listening to extremist Islamic teachings via the internet and acting out on it. Of course, not everyone who listens to those teachings straps on a suicide bomb or loads up with firearms or materials to build explosives. But some do. White supremacy and other extremist right-wing ideologies aren't really any different in that regard. People soak in the extremist teachings, and in the case of extremist right-wing ideologies, there are a lot of places to get them. The internet, of course. Alt-right and white supremacist groups like the Proud Boys and Stormfront with an internet presence, certain internet forums, online videos, and more mainstream right-wing media outlets like Fox News, The Washington Examiner, and Breitbart. And in the United States, we have an authoritarian, right-wing expression of our dominant religion that also helps us along, evangelical Christianity, an expression where few leaders are willing to speak out against the scourge of white supremacy, and in some cases even encourage this ideology. The fear of what will happen if and when white people will become a numerical minority in this country. By the most recent estimates I'm aware of, the data is around 2045, is propagated not by white supremacist groups, but by evangelical Christians. According to a 2018 survey by PRRI, 54% of white evangelicals say the U.S. becoming a majority non-white nation will be mostly negative. They are the only religious group where more than half expressed concern over the change in demographics. White evangelical concern about this changing reality is often couched in coded language. The Quiverful movement, for example, is based on the idea that evangelical Christian families should have as many children as possible to be raised as soldiers for Christ. Even outside of the extremist Quiverful movement, complementarianism within evangelical circles is embraced. The idea of complementarianism being that men and women are equal but different. Men are wired to work outside the home, provide, and be the head decision maker, while women are wired to bear and care for children in the home. While there isn't as much of a hard line against birth control or forms of natural family planning, the implication is still the idea that Christian families should be fruitful and multiply, 
because other religions are becoming a larger share of our population through childbirth. But interestingly enough, population growth by immigration, even by Syrian Christians, or by Central American refugees, who are mostly Roman Catholic, don't seem to count. Here's where you sometimes hear about the preservation of Western civilization or European civilization slipped in, which is a little less coded. But of course, if you call them out on it, oh no, that's not racist at all. You're the real racist for pointing that out. Sure, Jan. Point is, white supremacy and other extreme right-wing ideologies are embedded in U.S. culture. What we are seeing is not an aberration, but the end result of these ideologies. And our country's leadership is stoking those fires. Kirschus in particular stated in his manifesto, quote, This attack is a response to the Hispanic invasion of Texas. They are the instigators, not me. I am simply defending my country from cultural and ethnic replacement brought on by an invasion. End quote. Crucius was radicalized through an internet troll site and through white supremacist theories such as the Great Replacement, the belief that white Christians are being replaced by invaders who are people of color. Much like young men who watch ISIS videos and get radicalized, Crucius Legan, who was the Gilroy shooter, and many other young white men are being radicalized in the same way. But in the U.S., this radicalization is being reinforced by the mainstream conservative media, particularly by pundits like Tucker Carlson. And it's being tacitly endorsed by the President of the United States. Both sides. When Donald Trump talks about white supremacist terror attacks, like Charlottesville and now El Paso, he cannot bring himself to unqualifiably condemn white supremacy. In response to El Paso, Trump stated, quote, I am concerned about the rise of any group of hate. I don't like it. Whether it's white supremacy, whether it's any other kind of supremacy, whether it's Antifa, end quote. Doesn't that sound familiar? Many sides. There is no evidence that Antifa, a left-wing anti-fascist movement with no centralized structure, is behind any of the recent shootings. The majority of domestic terror incidents in recent years have been committed by perpetrators with right-wing ideologies, including white supremacy. While confrontational in their tactics, Antifa is not a terrorist movement or terror group. In Trump's repeated efforts, in equating white supremacy with Antifa is gaslighting. White supremacy and other extreme conservative ideologies, such as the incel movement and the alt-right, are more dangerous than Antifa by far. Yet the federal government does not classify domestic terrorism as actual terrorism. Trump is also trying to link the Dayton shooter, Connor Betts, to an Antifa motivation. Betts was a registered Democrat and described himself online as left-wing, but may have also been exploring violent ideologies in recent years. He had a long history of an obsession with guns and gun violence, as well as a desire to commit violence against women, and expressed desire to commit a mass shooting. Investigating authorities 
don't believe the shooting was ideologically or racially motivated. Thing is, even if he held left-wing or Antifa views, there is nothing about anti-fascist beliefs that would support targeting a bar and killing random people having fun, including a family member and mostly black Americans. Anti-fascists are often confrontational, particularly against Nazis and white supremacists. But there is no ideology that is part of Antifa that states that there are certain groups that are inferior simply for what race they were born or what country they were born in. Being against fascism as a specific political position shouldn't even be considered extreme left wing. Tactics such as confrontation and low level violence, like punching Nazis, are on extreme side, and I'm not out here condoning violence. But the specific political position itself, opposing fascists, should not be considered an extreme left wing position or even a left wing position at all. But it's 2019 and here we are. On the other hand, white supremacy is, by definition, the belief that white people are superior to other races of people. If you view others as inferior to you simply for who they are, it's not that far a step to say that they shouldn't exist, and then to act on that belief. Yet there are other beliefs that are often tied into white supremacy, though they don't have to be in practice, and they can be just as dangerous. People who are liberal or left of center can also hold retrograde problematic beliefs. People who are left of center can be racist, they can be sexist, they can be homophobic. The Dayton shooter, Connor Betts, had a history of violent ideations, but it wasn't so much tied into his left-wing politics, but into views he held that were misogynistic and by no means progressive. Authorities believe that Betts was an incel, in other words, was part of the movement of men and adolescent boys who called themselves involuntarily celibate, blaming desired women and girls for not reciprocating their sexual attractions. His classification as an incel could be debated because he had a history of being in relationships with women, but he apparently had problems with women. His most recent ex-girlfriend, who broke up with him only two weeks before the shooting, stated that Betts once stalked another ex-girlfriend on Facebook, then left a thinly veiled threatening letter on the woman's car once she moved back to town. There are also other signs that Betts was misogynistic. He was the lead singer in a porno grind metal band. Porno grind is a subgenre of metal music defined by themes of sexual violence and necrophilia. In high school, Betts wrote a rape list of girls in his school that he wanted to sexually assault. While it is not reported that he actually went through with what he wanted to do, the list was discovered and he was temporarily suspended from school. Sometime after returning from suspension, another list was discovered, this time a kill list, pretty self-explanatory, which got him into trouble again with his school. Neither of these threats left him with any kind of criminal record that would have allowed him to be flagged in a criminal background check for firearms. We see views of patriarchy and misogyny and sexual and physical violence that is an outgrowth of these ideologies. We see patriarchy and misogyny tied in with white supremacy and historically they have been closely tied together. Much of the underpinning of slavery and racial segregation revolved around concerns about the purity of the white race and the protection of white women from defilement by men of color, while allowing 
no such protections for black women against the lusts or sexual violence of white men. In a post-slavery world where there was no more need for high numbers of black people to be born into perpetual servitude, the worry was, and still is, that black people, as well as Latinos and other people of color, will outbreed pure white people. So some of the push for traditional gender roles comes from this concern that with dropping white birth rates, white people will become a numerical minority in the United States. But not all misogynistic views are tied into white supremacy. Some just come from good old-fashioned patriarchy and related male entitlement. Even without the extra baggage of white supremacy, there are men in our society who believe that they are entitled to the women they want, for the relationship they want, and are irrationally angry if they don't get the women they feel they're entitled to. Of course, it hurts when we're rejected for a date or for a romantic relationship, or we're broken up with by someone we're attracted to or interested in or love, but we're not entitled to anyone else's love or affection. Just like a man can like who he likes, a woman can also like who she likes. Anyone can like who they like. We all have the right to our choices and who we date, who we marry, and when, but we can't control the choices of others, nor should we want to. But that's often lost on men who get absorbed in incel ideology. Now, there's more to insult ideology than that, but that's the gist of it, that they feel they are being cheated out of sexual relationships or a relationship with the women they feel entitled to have, usually because of the woman's perceived sexual attractiveness. It essentially objectifies women. Why is this a thing? We can look to radicalization by internet sites and communities that are populated by incels and men going their own way, or MGTOW which is often the incel community's equivalent of taking your toys and going home. I am well aware that I'm speaking in terms that are heteronormative, but these ideologies tend to be pretty heteronormative. There have been mass shootings and other major violent attacks committed by men with motivations rooted in incel ideology, such as the van ramming attack in Toronto in April of 2018, which killed 10 people and injured 16 and a Tallahassee, Florida yoga studio shooting in November of the same year, which killed three people, including the shooter, and injured five others. But this entitlement and resulting violence is also an outgrowth of our society as a whole, downplaying sexual violence. While hashtag MeToo has been a call to hold perpetrators of sexual violence to account, many perpetrators still get away with it. And excuses are made by many in authority, including parents, clergy, politicians, and judges. And like white supremacy, misogyny is also reinforced at the top. Yeah, I'm going to go after. <laughs> Believe me, she would not be my first choice, that I can tell you. Man. You don't know. That would not be my first choice. Donald Trump is a white supremacist and a misogynist, and he is gaslighting us with false equivalency and deflection. His administration is twisting domestic terror attacks and other mass shootings in order to silence dissent against people who oppose white supremacy and further shape a violent America in his image. While these problems did not start with Trump, he's not helping. And as violent conservative ideologies are on the rise, 
domestic terror attacks go up, and mass shootings increase. Your leader has the blood of a nation on his hands. Thank you very much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. Go to potstirerpodcast.com slash download and you can get to the podcast on most podcast players. If you subscribe, you can download episodes as soon as they're posted. Also, I love to tweet. So follow the show on Twitter at potstirercast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. I give you the incredible flying machine!